You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask that you not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Amen? Amen. So last week in Revelation 5 and Philippians 1, we looked at the glory of Jesus and our souls. Jesus should be the supreme satisfaction of our souls because Jesus is worthy. He deserves it. And what does it look like when Jesus is our supreme satisfaction? It looks like to live as Christ and to die as gain. It looks like humble joy. Okay, that was last week. Well, this week in Ephesians 3, we're going to see this theme again, okay? The book of Ephesians has a lot to say about the glory of Jesus, but also Ephesians has a lot to say about the church and about our love for one another, okay? So there's the the glory of Jesus, there's the church, and there's our love for one another. All three of these things are connected, and the goal of this sermon is to show you how. Okay, I want to show you basically just three things in this sermon. Number one, I want to show you up here the cosmic centrality of Jesus. Then second, I want to show you the radical reality of the church. And then here for number three, I want to show you the epic effect of our love. Those three things, and you're going to see all three of these kind of do like, they kind of do like this. Okay, they're all connected, and I want to show you how they're connected. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you for what you have revealed to the apostles. Thank you that when we read what they have written, we can perceive your insight, their insight into the mystery of Christ. 
And so by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would speak to us today. Speak to us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to start up here. I want to show you the cosmic centrality of Jesus. And to do that, I want us to zoom out for a minute, and I want to show you what Paul says about Jesus in chapter 1. Okay, now in chapter 1, Ephesians 1, the home run statement here is in uh, verses 1 and 9. All right, one and nine, uh, 9 and 10, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. But before we look at that, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 4, okay? Look at verse 4 for a minute. Paul tells us here that God the Father has chosen us. All of us who believe in Jesus, God the Father has chosen us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So before we were ever born and had done nothing, either good or bad, God purposed that, we, that he would have us as his people through his son by the shedding of his son's blood. And this was because of the riches of God's grace, through the praise of God's grace, according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Okay, that's verse 9, all right? God's purpose, or his plan in verse 10 is a plan for the fullness of time, which means it goes, it goes back as far as you can go and it looks forward as far as you can go. And this plan is to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And now this word unite, it means to, to sum up, okay? It means to be the main point. It means to, to be the focus or to be the center. Jesus is that for everything that exists. Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that all things, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. Invisible things and visible things. Every last thing there is, it has to do with Jesus. The problem, however, is the curse of sin. Now, when it comes to sin, we tend to be pretty acquainted with the curse of sin when it comes to our own experience, right? We get that our world is fallen. We see the evidence of its fallenness all around us. We see it in ourselves. But one thing that we may not understand or get most times is how the curse of sin has affected the entire cosmos. So this is, these are all things in heaven and on earth. There's a, the seen, tangible realm of this earth and then the unseen spiritual realm. Both, heaven and earth, have been thrown out of whack, as it were, because of sin. But this will not always be. God's purpose is for all creation to be in harmony. All things will be put right. In the end, there will not be a single thing that is out of line. God's enemies will be judged. God's people will be saved. And the perfection of his glory will shine in the new heavens and the new earth. And the way all that happens is in Jesus. Jesus is the emphasis of God's plan. He's not just an instrument, but he's the focus. Jesus is the one the Father has chosen to sum up the entire cosmos. Jesus Christ 
is central. Which is another reason I love that window right there. Our window. That's our window right there. I love that window because in that window, you can turn and look. It's okay. Take a look up there again. Right in the center there is the Christ symbol, okay? That Christ symbol in the stained glass window is directly central. And then everything around that circle, it comes through Christ and it exists for Christ. And so when you look, when we look at that window, our eyes are meant over and over again to come back to the center. Our eyes are meant to focus in again and again on the center, which is Christ. And that's why I love that window. That window is a lot like the universe. Jesus is the focus. Jesus Christ is central. It's, it's really all about Jesus. And there's at least one person in my life who understands this, at least theoretically, okay? It's my, it's my son, my four-year-old son, Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is not in the room right now because he is in childcare. Hey, childcare. Let's, let's give a hand for the childcare folks. Maybe they can hear us. He's in childcare. We'll explain to him later what I'm saying. But this is, what, this is our experience with him. Every time after dinner when I read the Bible to my family, I, I usually I have one question for the kids, and I keep it really short. I mean, these are, these are 45 second devos, guys. Really short question. I give them just a minute to answer the question. And, and every time when I open the floor for, for them to answer the question, Nathaniel always, always, always has something to say. It doesn't matter what the question is. It doesn't matter what I say. Nathaniel raises his hand and I say, yes, Nathaniel. And this is what he says, always. Does not matter what the question is. He raises his hand and he says, Jesus was us. Every time. That's his answer every time. And every time he says it, no matter what the question was, I have to say, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're right. <laughs> That's true. It really is about Jesus. He really is the ultimate answer every time. It's about him. So when we step it back, when we see it all, when we sum it up, Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the center. It is all about Jesus. He has, Jesus has cosmic centrality. And he loves us. Okay. Which brings us to number two. That's the cosmic centrality of Jesus. Paul tells us that. I want you now to look at the radical reality of the church. So if Jesus is going to sum up all things, if he's going to bring all things together and restore harmony to the cosmos, the biggest obstacle in the way is humans. Because God's image bearers, because of sin, we are hostile to God and we are hostile to one another. And that's the problem. See, we, we cannot keep talking about Jesus and the universe while we have Cain out in the field getting angry with God and killing his brother. We gotta deal with that. Humans are dead in their trespasses and sins. They follow the course of this world. They are dominated 
by the power of Satan. They carry out their own desires and they are rightly deserving of God's wrath. And so what is God going to do about that with Jesus as the focus? Right? That's the question. What's God going to do about that with Jesus at the center? Well, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what he's done. That's what God has done. God reconciles sinful humans to himself by the death of Jesus in our place. And he also reconciles sinful humans to one another. See, the good news of Jesus is not mainly good news for individual persons, but it's good news for a people, and that people is called the church. And so starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul takes up this theme of the church. The church is the corporate identity of all these individuals who were once dead in their sins, but now have been made alive in Jesus. And there are at least two different ways to think about the church, and there are a handful of ways to talk about those two different ways, okay? Um, one way to talk about the church is to talk about the church invisible and then the church visible. Another way to talk about the church is the church universal and the church local. The church universal is the, the heavenly perspective of all Christians over all time and space. If you want to imagine in your minds what the church universal looks like, just think ahead, envision the last day at the resurrection, all who are raised from the dead and glorified and ushered into the presence of Jesus as his bride, that's the church universal. Chapter 1, verse 22, when Paul says that Jesus, who is the head over all things, is given to the church, which is his body, the church universal is what Paul means. This is all the saints. But then there's the church local. And the church local is the more normative way that the New Testament talks about the church. And this is simply, these are local congregations of believers in this world, here and now, who make visible, imperfectly, the church universal. Now how do these churches local make visible the church universal? Well, it's by their, it's by their gathering together in person for worship. It's by their coming together to hear the word of God preached and to administer the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. That's what, that's what we're doing this morning. What we're doing here, what we're doing right now is how we make the church visible. We are the church local. We are one concrete, one concrete expression of the church universal. Okay, so it's the church universal there's a church local. And in Ephesians, every time Paul uses the word church, he's talking about the church universal. Okay? 
He's talking about the church in its grand, ultimate sense. But here's the thing. Although he's talking about the church universal, he's talking to churches that are local, okay? Which means he's talking to us. And there are, at least, there, there are at least three things that he wants us as a local church to know about the church universal. So I want to just run through these quickly. Number one is this. The church is the creation of a new humanity. All right, this is Ephesians 2, all of 11 through 22. And God's reality, which is the reality that matters most, humans are born into one of two categories. Either you are of the Jewish people or you are of the nations. And the Jewish people are God's covenant people. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. And through them, according to the flesh, Jesus the Messiah has come. But we who have been born of the nations were separated from all of that. Paul says in verse 12 that we who have been born of the nations, we were strangers to the covenants of promise and we were without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we Gentiles who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in Christ, the old categories of Jewish people and Gentile people have now been transcended by a new category of believing Jewish people and believing Gentile people. And those people are called the church. It's Ephesians 2, 11 to 12. The church is a new kind of humanity. We are one new man created in Christ Jesus himself. Jesus created us in himself as one new man, Ephesians 2, 15. This is reality. This is what Jesus has done, which means that you Christian right now, you Christian here in Minnesota, you are more united to a Christian from the Peruvian Amazon than you are to your coworker who has all the same interests that you do. This is the church universal. We are a trans-historical, transcultural people who by any other metric would have nothing to do with one another. Jesus has brought us together as one people. He has filled us with one spirit. We have access to one father. The church is the creation of a new humanity. Second thing, the church is the revelation of God's mystery. This is chapter three. Okay. Now, for most of us, the fact that Gentile nations through faith in Jesus become part of the people of God, that, that doesn't exactly blow us away like it should. And that's because this is like all we're used to. I mean, thanks to the missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul, by the end of the first century, majority Gentile churches had become a thing. And for most of us, this is, this is all we know. Which is one reason why it's important for us to read the Bible. A lot of times we can take bits and pieces of the Bible and we can fit them into our own situation. We can try to, to assess the Bible from our own perspective. 
But see, that's backwards. Instead, we should look at our own situation from the Bible's whole storyline, and we should assess our own day through what the Bible says. And when we do that, when, when we think that way, when we really try to see through the lens of Scripture, this is insane right now. This is insane because this is a long ways from Jerusalem. You ever think about that? We are a long ways from Jerusalem. Recently, I was, I was playing around with Google Earth, okay, because Melissa and I were going to announce our summer vacation plans to the kids. Okay, we're, we're going to a beach in North Carolina, and so I wanted to show the kids what that looks like on the globe, okay? I wanted to show them, hey, this is the edge of the continent, this is the Atlantic Ocean, and we're gonna be here. So, so the way it works with Google Earth is, you know, you, you go and you, you start in one place, and you just kind of punch in, you plug in where you wanna go, and then, you know, you hit enter, and it like, it like zooms out. You guys have done this before? You can just free app, you know? It zooms out, and then it turns, and then it zooms in to where your destination is. And so that's how we told the kids where we're going this summer. And it was super cool. I mean, it's a super cool thing. I recommend announcing vacation plans that way. It just gives you perspective. But can you imagine if Moses had Google Earth? Like if you could time travel, if so you could drop in on Moses during one of his conversations with Pharaoh, what, what if you dropped in on Moses and Pharaoh and you brought Google Earth? You gotta use your imaginations here, okay? Just so you know, this is, a, this is a, an exercise in imagination, okay? So you're, you're there, okay? You've dropped in, there's Moses, there's Pharaoh. Hey, Moses, Pharaoh, I gotta interrupt you for a minute because I just have to show you this. First, it's a good thing this is happening. Okay, this is very important that you're having this conversation. But I want to let you know that one day, one day both of your people, the Hebrews and the nations like Egypt, one day through faith in the Messiah, they're going to be fellow heirs, members of the same body partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And look, there's little glimpses of it now, but this is mainly a mystery. It's a mystery now. One day though, Moses, Pharaoh, one day it's going to be clear. The Messiah, the one who Moses is really pointing to, he is going to create a new humanity called the church, and they're going to be all over this planet. Let me show you this. Let me show you this. And this is when you pull out your Google Earth, okay? And Moses and Pharaoh are there. You pull out your Google Earth, and you type in 1524 Summit Avenue. And it goes like that, and it turns a lot, and then it zooms in, and it zooms in, and they say, where is that? And you say, it's the middle of nowhere. 
It's this strange continent, I know. And it's cold all the time. But right there, right here, thousands of years from now, right here, there is going to be a local expression of this new people made by the Messiah called a church. And it's going to be in a city named St. Paul. And Moses is going to say, who is St. Paul? And you say, he comes later in the story. Can you imagine that? We are a mystery. This, this right now is a mystery. It is a mystery hidden for ages in God, but now it has been revealed and we can read about it. We can read about it in this book and we are part of it as the church. The church is a radical reality. The third thing is to see the church is the manifestation of God's manifold wisdom. This is Ephesians 3, verse 10. Uh, Paul, his calling here is to preach Jesus to the nations. His calling is to reveal the mystery of the church so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, Now, this is a new kind of humanity. The church, which is now this revealed mystery, this new kind of humanity, is now made plain. It's made visible, and it's made visible and made plain to show us something about God. Okay, This is to show us something about God, and it's to show who something about God. Look here in the text is to show rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Paul's talking about spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. And based upon how Paul talks about spiritual forces in Ephesians, these are hostile beings. And the church, just by her existence, just because the church is, the church shows these demons the manifold wisdom of God, that his thinking, his judgments, his ways are unsearchable and inscrutable. You cannot know his mind. You cannot be his counselor. You cannot give him a gift expecting to be repaid because from him and through him and to him are all things. And his eternal purpose, God's eternal purpose in the church has been realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remember, the plan, God's plan, is that Jesus is going to sum up the entire cosmos. Jesus is the focus of all things in heaven and on earth. And on earth, we see here, the church has been realized. The radical reality of the church is active, which means spiritual forces, now he's coming for you. He's coming for you. When demons read the book of Ephesians and what Ephesians says about the church, when demons look in on the local expressions of the church, they tremble in fear because they know their day is coming. The God of manifold wisdom who has done this, who has done this, it's just a matter of time. Spiritual forces of evil. It's just a matter of time. The church, we are, the church is a radical reality. And now the last thing I want to show you here, number three, the epic effect of our love. 
So the spiritual forces we see in Ephesians 3 are getting the message, but that does not mean they're passive. They fight against the church. The spiritual forces of evil fight against the church, which is why we are called to stand against them. That's Ephesians chapter 6, the very end of the book. But there's also something more fundamental that we are called to do as a local church. And this is what Paul prays for us in chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. Now, I want us to change gears for a minute, okay? Because we're going to end, we're going to close now by, by focusing in and looking closely at these verses, okay? 14 to 19, chapter 3. Paul is praying this prayer for us, okay? The yous here are plural. Paul is saying y'all, all right? Verse 14, for this reason, because of God's eternal purpose realized in Jesus, because Jesus has created the church, Paul bows before God the Father who is sovereign over all, and he says, this is what I'm asking God to do. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, verse 16 and verse 17, this is the first order of, of Paul's prayer, okay? And it's basically repeating the same idea. To be strengthened through the spirit in our inner being, and to have Christ dwell in our hearts is the same thing, okay? It means, it's the idea that Jesus by his spirit is in the driver's seat of our lives. Jesus by his spirit indwells us and he settles in with his continued presence at the center of who we are. So Jesus is central to the cosmos and Jesus is central to you and me. Paul prays this first, he prays it first. And then the purpose for this is in verse 18. It's so that we would have strength to comprehend the greatness of the love of Christ. So that, verse 19, we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That means to be mature. Paul's talking about being spiritually mature corporately. It means that we become all that God intends for us to be as his people together. We become mature like God intends by comprehending the greatness of the love of Christ, which is the result of Christ by his spirit dwelling in our hearts. And then there's one more thing though in verse 17. This little sentence Paul puts in there it's an important step between Christ dwelling in our hearts and then our comprehending the love of Christ and becoming mature. Paul says at the end of verse 17, see it there. You being rooted and grounded in love. That's the link between Christ dwelling in us and our comprehending his love and becoming mature. The way that we get there, the way that we get from Christ dwelling in our hearts to us becoming mature and knowing the greatness of his love, the way we get there is be, by being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, whose love? Whose love? Is this, is this God's love for us? Or is Paul talking about our love for one another? It's our love for one another. 
Now, that's love that comes from God, okay? We're not mustering this up on our own. This love comes from Christ dwelling in our hearts. But this is our love from Christ for one another and is essential to our growth. Paul says this in chapter 4. Let me show you this in chapter 4. By verse 13 of chapter 4, the topic again becomes the maturity of the church. Okay, the church is on the path toward maturity, verse 13, toward mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and the fullness of Christ in 413, and the fullness of God in 319 is the same idea. This is maturity. Now, how do we get there? Well, we're not swept away by bad doctrine, but rather, chapter 4, look at this, chapter 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this is our love for one another that comes from Christ. Do you see the epic effect of our love for one another. We as the church, we cannot be all that God intends for us to be without loving each other. Our love for one another is what makes us grow, which is why Paul commands us in chapter five, verse two, walk in love as Christ has loved us. Church, loving one another is not jargon and it's not optional loving one another is absolutely essential essential to who we are i want us to be a healthy church increasing Immaturity. I, I want our church to be filled with all the fullness of God. And when I think about that, when I imagine how that looks, I imagine a church of men and women and boys and girls who are multiplied and matured as worshippers, servants, and missionaries of Jesus, who live as faithful witnesses to his power and goodness in every sphere of life within our homes and workplaces and our neighborhoods and groups, wherever we find ourselves. We speak Jesus to people and we watch him raise the dead. And we experience an enriched understanding of his truth and increased joy in his fellowship and intensified zeal for his glory. Our marriages are good and our children are encouraged and they look, they look to examples within our church of lion-hearted men and glorious women who have the highways of Zion deep in our bones and the compassion of Jericho Road ready at our hands and the biblical fluency of Berea on the tip of our tongues. We abound in good works and we overflow in generosity. We are young and old. We are rich and poor. We are brown, 
red, yellow, black, and white bound together by the cross that has crushed our sinful hostilities and has created a new humanity, one that desires a better country, that is a heavenly one. And therefore, we will out rejoice everybody of this world and we will suffer in hope like the worst thing is never the last thing because Jesus has defeated death and Jesus is coming again because Jesus Christ is real. We will get there, City's Church. That will happen. It will happen here. It will happen here, and it will happen by our being rooted and grounded and built up in our love for one another. Do you see it now? The cosmic centrality of Jesus is expressed in the radical reality of the church. And that expression is seen and felt and known when we love one another right here as a local church, city's church. Love one another. Didn't Jesus say that? John 13, 35, Jesus says that all people will know that we are his disciples. How? By our love for one another. And that's what brings us to the table this morning because here at this table, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus and the cup represents his shed blood. And when we eat and drink, we give Jesus thanks for his cross and we rejoice in the fellowship that we have in him. But we know that Jesus' cross didn't just accomplish our fellowship with him, but Jesus also accomplished our fellowship with one another. There, there is an important horizontal dimension to the table. And so this morning, as we eat and drink, we, we, we eat and drink together, okay? And one thing I want you to do, as you take the bread and cup, I want to encourage you this morning, as you take the bread and cup, just look around for a minute. You do that? Just look around. Hold the bread, hold the cup, look around, and look at the people in this room. Look at this church local, okay? And let us love one another. The body of Jesus is the true bread. The blood of Jesus is the true drink. Let us serve you.